Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Asikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Sunday, May the 21st, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. And uh, we'd like to thank everyone uh, for tuning in uh, with us once again uh, for another edition of the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast. Later on in our program, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the continuing Sudanese security crisis where the Sudanese Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces have signed a seven-day ceasefire uh, during negotiations in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. An African delegation is scheduled uh, to visit uh, Ukraine and Russia in an effort to end uh, the war in Eastern Europe. The Russian Defense Ministry uh, has announced that the city of Aryomovsk has fallen uh, to their troops. And there has been demonstrations against the government in the capital of Kinshasa, in the Democratic Republic of Congo earlier today. In the second hour, we present another installment in our African Liberation Month programming with a focus on Malcolm X, El-Hajj Malik Shabazz. We review an interview with the Pan-Africanist leader over a radio station in Philadelphia during 1964. Later, we examine an address delivered by Malcolm X in January of 1965 in New York City. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of this program, Uh, so stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude in the West African state of Ghana with the African Brothers Band International in a tribute to BK. Let's listen in. I'm a 
Thank you. 
Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for uh, this Sunday, uh, May 21st, uh, 2023, and uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment of our program. 
And uh, our lead story deals with a delegation of six African leaders that are set to hold talks with Kiev and Moscow uh, aimed uh, to uh, initiate a peace process, but also broach the thorny issue of how a heavily sanctioned Russia can be paid uh, for the fertilizer exports Africa desperately needs. A key mediator who helped uh, broker the talk said in an interview uh, with uh, the Associated Press, Ives, Jean Ives Olivier, an international negotiator who has been working for six months to put uh, the talks together, said the African leaders would also discuss the related issue of easing the passage of more grain shipments out of Ukraine amid the war and the possibility of more prisoner swaps when they travel to both countries on what they've characterized as a peace mission. The talks will likely be next month, Olivier said. He arrived in Moscow on Sunday and will also go to Kiev for meetings with high-level officials to work out logistics for the upcoming talks. For one, the six African presidents would likely have to travel to Kiev by night train from Poland amid the fighting, he said. Russian President Vladimir Putin and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky have both agreed to separately host the delegation of presidents from the Republic of South Africa, Senegal, Egypt, the Republic of Congo, Uganda, as well as Zambia. The talks also have the approval of the United States, the European Union, the United Nations, the African Union, and China. Olivier said in a video call uh, with uh, the Associated Press just two days ago. And you can read this article in its entirety uh, over uh, the Pan-African Newswire. Now, the Sudan Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces have signed a crucial ceasefire agreement in the first hours of Saturday. Uh, the aim of this agreement is to facilitate the delivery of urgent humanitarian aid and restore essential services across the country. Mediated uh, by the United States and Saudi Arabia, the agreement underscores the commitment to upholding Sudan's sovereignty, unity, and territorial integrity. It reaffirms the principles of commitments established in the Jeddah Declaration of Commitment to protect the civilians of Sudan, agreed upon on May the 11th of 2023, taking effect uh, 48 hours after the signing. The ceasefire agreement spans a designated short-term period of seven days. The agreement encompasses all of Sudan, and the parties jointly bear the responsibility of effectively communicating the ceasefire to the civilian population through various channels, including print, radio, and other means of communication. Of utmost importance, the ceasefire agreement obliges the parties to ensure freedom of movement for civilians throughout Sudan and protect them from violence, harassment, and recruitment, and other forms of abuse. It explicitly prohibits a wide range of actions that could endanger civilians or hinder humanitarian efforts, such as attacks on civilians targeting the infrastructure, obstruction of aid, and the acquisition or distribution of arms. Conversely, the agreement permits certain actions, including repairing essential services and infrastructure, conducting medical evacuations, and providing non-combat materials and humanitarian assistance. The parties commit uh, to establishing favorable conditions for emergency relief provisions and ensuring safe and unimpeded access uh, for humanitarian agents, uh, humanitarian processes. And uh, if you want to 
uh, read uh, this article as well in detail. Just go to the Pan-African Newswire. In other news, uh, police in the capital city of the Democratic Republic of Congo, Kinshasa, clashed with an opposition march uh, yesterday. The police fired tear gas at hundreds of protesters. The police said they had deviated from the authorized route through uh, the capital city. The march was organized by opposition leaders against what they say are irregularities when people try to register to vote for the presidential elections scheduled to take place later this year in December. The protesters are also angry at the high cost of living and accuse President Felix Shesekedi of being corrupt. The life uh, has become untenable. Look how the volume of bread has dropped significantly. We are calling for change in Congo, social change, said uh, Bandanda Belgi, a father of six. Uh, Moise Katumbi, a millionaire businessman and former governor of Katanga province, who is expected to run in the presidential election in December, fell out with Chesakete when the former president, Joseph Kabila, was in power. And you're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In other news, uh, Cameroon has been celebrating 51 years as a unified nation with a military and civilian parade on National Unity Day in the capital of Yaoundé. For all but uh, 10 of those years, it has been ruled by just one man, President Paul Bia. And and at 91 years old, he is now the oldest head of state in the world. country is now... Um, less united than ever. Thousands of people have been killed since 2016 and over a million people displaced after a group of Anglophone <coughs> Cameroonians <coughs> began to fight uh, Bia's Francophone government. Some of, some of those who watched the parade sounded optimistic about their country's future and welcomed the day. It is to remind that uh, we are one people. It is to remind that it's together that we can build uh, and develop. It is to remind that it's together that we can be happy. It's together that we can live in peace, said Teresa Timgoya, a Francophone Cameroonian who is a bank executive as well. I think it's a happy day, and what I've seen today shows that Cameroon's democracy is actually in the right direction. Inobe Akepe an Anglophone Cameroonian who is a university lecturer said, but one Francophone journalist uh, described the unity of the country as a facade. Today, Cameroonians agree that we are living in a certain facade of unity. First, because in the Northwest and Southwest, uh, you know uh, that there are successionists who do not let us breathe. And on the other hand, we see the rise of hatred in the country, said Pierre Yoto, a journalist, and the director of the Soleil d'Afrique newspaper. Now, this rainy season in Cameroon is also facing a cholera epidemic, which has spread to all of its regions and is now to have infected over 20,000 people. The figure is likely to be higher as only those infected people who managed to reach hospitals are counted. Just two days ago, on the eve of National Unity Day, The authorities closed down some of Yaoundé's food markets to prevent the spread of the deadly bacterial disease. And finally, uh, the city of of, uh, Aryomovsk has been completely liberated in the course of the special military operation in Ukraine. That's according to the Russian Defense Ministry. They announced this earlier today. They said that, quote, in the Aryomovsk 
tactical direction, the assault team of the Wagner Private Military Company, with the support of artillery and aviation of the Southern Battle Group, has completed the liberation of the city of Aryomovsk, uh, the ministry stated. Aryomovsk is located in the north of the Donetsk People's Republic, and it served as a major transportation hub for the Ukrainian army supplies in Donbass. This fighting to liberate the city started in August of 2022. The battle for this city is one of the largest battles during the liberation of Donbass since 2014. Some 72,000 people lived in Artyomovsk before the battle had started. And uh, with that, that we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international uh, press service. Uh, it was founded in 1998, and since then it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go uh, to our website uh, at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, uh, worldwide, the special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, May 21st, uh, 2023, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for uh, this week.
Uh, music from uh, Detroit's own uh, Anita Baker uh, with the track entitled No One to Blame. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for study May 21st, uh, 2023. And we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, Michigan. And uh, right now we want to listen to a news report uh, on uh, the developing situation in the Republic of Sudan, uh, where there has been a ceasefire signed uh, for a seven-day period as a result of the talks uh, in the Red Sea port city of Jeddah in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Uh, let's listen to this report. All right, let's take you now back to Sudan, where the army has confirmed a seven-day ceasefire deal with the paramilitary rapid support forces has been signed. Joining us now to discuss this from Madini City in Sudan is our correspondent, Naba Muhideen. Naba, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Significantly around this deal is that it's the first time the sides have actually signed a truce agreement, you know, after negotiations. So what can we then expect uh, during this period? Uh, actually, uh, the ceasefire that was signed, or the short-term ceasefire that was signed in Jeddah on May 20, was highly welcomed by both Sudanese and by the military, uh, and the minister, by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So uh, we are expecting that the ceasefire this time will hold more, and uh, it will open more uh, corridors uh, or opportunity for humanitarian aid workers and organizations to help those in need, because we witnessed seven ceasefires that was failing, uh, failing from time to time and there was violations of the ceasefire but this time uh, after uh, six weeks of uh, the turmoil in Sudan and the, uh, the armed conflict we are expecting this fire will, will hold more and will help humanitarian aid organizations to uh, reach those in need especially in Khartoum because the situation is catastrophe and uh, two sides are willing to adhere this humanitarian ceasefire. Uh, there is a relative calm in Khartoum since it was announced last night, but there is also some fighting or some violation of it. Uh, but the fighting is not intensive uh, as, uh, as the past few weeks, so we are expecting that it will hold and it will be respected for humanitarian purposes. Uh, you know, in a relation to this deal and, and the signing thereof, we do understand, of course, that uh, the deal does not in any way address the political issues. Do we know of any ongoing discussions uh, with other world leaders that are currently ongoing? Uh, actually, there is no uh, announced discussions or political resolution. Only the discussion and the debate is about opening humanitarian corridors and about uh, short-term ceasefire, which is highly welcome. But our uh, our sources told us that there is uh, talks underway and there is uh, talks between the two sides. It's not face-to-face -face talks, but there is uh, a compromise uh, underway, and it's. Uh, uh, sponsored by United Nations, uh, by United Nations and by United States and Saudi Arabia, but it's not announced. We are expecting if these um, uh, talks uh, take place uh, 
face to face, it will definitely help in relieving the situation and the political uh, uh, political situation and it will take Sudan out of the bottleneck but it's not announced maybe uh, after the two announced ceasefire and the short-term ceasefire and the humanitarian ceasefires it will announce later so we know that there is discussions underway but it's not announced yet as someone who is in Sudan and we obviously know that this battle enters its sixth week just take us through just how this battle has affected uh, Sudanese people. I mean, we are hearing, of course, that uh, more than 1.1 million people have fled their homes, Naba, and you're obviously saying that in Khartoum, it's relatively quiet now, but we heard that there was ongoing fighting uh, a little bit earlier on. Just talk to us about the latest on the ground. Uh, on the ground in the capital Khartoum, there is relative calm because of the announced or the latest ceasefire. But the situation is not 100% safe, and there is um, accusations of uh, sexual harassment and, uh, and assault by the two sides. The two sides are accusing each other, so it's not safe right now for women specifically to stay in the capital Khartoum, and it's not safe for elderly people uh, because there is. A still lack of medicine, there is shortages of water, food, medicine and life-saving necessities. So the situation in Khartoum, the humanitarian and health situation are catastrophic. Uh, only 30% of the hospitals are working right now and 60% of it are out of service. More than 28 health facilities were targeted and bombed. There is still dead bodies that has not been, have not been evacuated from the streets uh, also which is uh, uh, warning of a looming health crisis. Uh, people are still stuck in their houses. They, they move but very carefully to get just life-saving necessities and food and water and supplies, but it's still unsafe and the roads unsafe. Outside of Khartoum, like Madani, where I'm staying right now, which is the capital of Al Jazeera state and central Sudan, with the biggest population in Sudan, um, with more than 17 uh, million people, now there is overpopulation. More than uh, 1 million people are displacing uh, in Madani right now, which is pushing on the services and make uh, real challenges for the government to provide food, uh, water, and uh, power services. So there is overpopulation everywhere in Madani Al Jazeera state, in northern state, in Port Sudan. Uh, the trade routes are closed, 100% closed, and the only port in Sudan uh, has suspended all of the operations. So people are living on the, uh, the goods and services which was already in country for six weeks, and there is real scarcity of everything and the situation is deteriorating every day. All right, so Naba, thank you so much for that update. Our correspondent Naba Mohideen coming to us live there just outside of Khartoum, giving us the very latest in Sudan. Of course, uh, the army has confirmed a seven-day ceasefire deal with the paramilitary rapid support forces has been enforced. Welcome back. And uh, that was a report uh, from the South African Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, talking to their correspondent in the Republic of Sudan. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with our upcoming uh, 60th anniversary of the Organization of African Unity, the predecessor of the African Union, uh, special focus uh, looking at the contributions of Malcolm X to the struggle for Pan-Africanism.
We'll take a break. We'll be right back.
the music of uh, Candy Staten uh, with Living Inside My Love. And uh, this is the Pan-African Journal, a uh, special worldwide radio broadcast for uh, Sunday, uh, May 21st, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal. As we mentioned earlier, uh, coming up on the 25th, uh, which is only uh, four days away, it will mark the 60th anniversary of the Organization of African Union's uh, formation, the predecessor to the African Union, which was formed in 2002. And, of course, uh, Malcolm X in 1964, uh, of course, related heavily uh, to the African independence process, the struggle towards African unity and Pan-Africanism. And uh, in our previous uh, broadcast, uh, we presented a rare archival audio file on a speech delivered uh, by Malcolm X on May 29th of 1964 in New York City, uh, just uh, several days prior to his return uh, from his first trip to Africa in 1964. He had traveled to Africa as well as other uh, West Asia countries in 1959. Uh, he went back uh, after his departure from the Nation of Islam, uh, which occurred in March of 1964. Uh, within a month, he had, uh, of course, returned to the African continent, uh, representing the Muslim Mosque Incorporated. And uh, upon uh, arriving back, he spoke uh, at the Militant Labor Forum on May 29, 1964, in New York City. We're going to present another rare archival audio file that was recorded uh, just five days uh, after the speech in our previous uh, broadcast. This uh, is an interview uh, with Joe Rainey on WDAS, a radio station in Philadelphia. This happened on June 4th of 1964. Uh, let's listen uh, to uh, Malcolm X, uh, El Hodge, Malik Shabazz, and uh, speaking about his trip uh, to the continent and the struggle uh, for African unity and Pan-Africanism. To unite the people of the United States with the Afri people of African descent in the West Indies, the people of African descent in Latin America and in South, or rather Central America and South America. But when we realize the power this, and we have here numerically, then uh, and we uh, study the uh, Nkrumah doctrine of Pan-Africanism, which means uh, uh, all the good that they do is not only for the Africans at home, but also for the Africans abroad. Uh, we can see that our philosophical migration, though we stay here in the Western Hemisphere physically, our philosophical, our cultural, our psychological migration back to Africa Meaning, mean we, which means we establish our spiritual ties with Africa, our cultural ties with Africa, while just the uh, erecting, the uh, establishing of these, of this type of bridge, this type of communication, and this type of bond, will be uh, uh, very, very helpful in enabling the people of African descent here in the United States to gain probably one of the most, uh, one of the strongest political economic and social positions that has ever been occupied by a strange people in a strange land since the beginning of the world. How is Malcolm X? We were in Lebanon in, at the university, at the American University of Beirut, uh, and uh, rather near the American University of Beirut, and some students from the Sudan uh, made it possible for me to give a lecture at the Sudanese Culturals, which was attended by most of the students 
and the faculty from the American uh, uh, University of Beirut. And at this lecture, it gave me my first chance to really feel the pulse of what the African reaction is like when they are given a, a true picture of the plight of the Afro-American. And uh, the, there was uh, one white American stood up and tried to defend America in a sense, you know, after I had described our plight, which he couldn't defend it. And he looked so bad trying to that after he sat down, he held his head. During the rest of the meeting, he sat there with his head down, with shame, with disgrace. And any time, and I learned, and also a Negro, American Negro girl, she stood up too and tried to defend uh, America. And I, I felt sorry for her, and I didn't even have to blast her because there happened to be another American Negro in the audience who stood up and sat her down, uh, but good. So I, I found that anywhere I went, if someone tried to attack me for being very blunt and frank and vocal about our problem, there was always someone in the audience ready to put them down. And um, I called my wife from Cairo, and she told me that uh, it was reported, at least in New York, by the press that my lecture in Beirut had caused a riot among the students, which was uh, the boldest lie, probably, one of the boldest lies, they told so many, that have ever been told in this country by anyone. Because the only, the only riotous uh, situation that took place was them crowding around afterwards, you know, to thank me for letting them know what was really going on over here. And when I was in uh, Nigeria, I spoke at the University of Ibadan, uh, which is a, a beautiful African uh, 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 school in Nigeria. And I did the same thing. I indicted America, really, uh, by just describing the real plight of the black people in this country. And after I had given this lecture, uh, a Negro stood up uh, uh, from, uh, from the Caribbean area here and tried again to attack me. The students came up on the speaker stand, took the microphone away from him, ran him not only off the stand, ran him off, out of the hall and off the campus and would have lynched him had not Essien Udom, the one who went to school in this country and wrote the book Black Nationalism come to his rescue. And I cite this to show you that any time the African or the Asian or the Latin American is given a true description of the hell and the torture that black people face in America, why it is impossible for anyone to stand up and defend America without running the risk of being lynched abroad. So these are things that I think are good to know, and I cite them very bluntly so that our people in this country will realize that we shouldn't be fighting our struggle for independence and, and for the liberation of our people as if we're the underdogs. Everybody on this earth is on our side who has a true understanding and knowledge of, of the nature of the plight or the struggle that we're, that we're facing. Another thing I noticed when I was in, uh, at the, in Mecca, in Arabia, during the Hajj, during the pilgrimage, and uh, it was my stay in... Uh, uh, in Arabia. I stayed in Arabia so long that originally I had intended to uh, leave Mecca and go back to Cairo to Khartoum and visit Kenya, Tanganyika, Zanzibar, and Uganda before going to West Africa. But when I got to Arabia, I, I was uh, informed by Mohammed Faisal, the son of Prince Faisal, who is the ruler of Arabia, that I was to be the state, a state guest so that during the entire 12 days that I was in Arabia, I was the guest of the Arabian ruler, 
who uh, placed, uh, uh, who put me in a suite at the Jetta Palace Hotel, the most beautiful place I've ever been, and gave put a car at my disposal with a chauffeur and a mualim, uh, a religious guide, who then, uh, uh, and also made it possible for me to commute back and forth between Jeddah and Mecca and Medina and the other holy cities in Arabia at, almost at will. And it was uh, the nature of my stay in Arabia that uh, was prolonged that made it imperative that I cancel my entire East African journey and go on into West Africa. And I, I might point out that some of the, I learned more about the religion of Islam, the orthodox religion of Islam, while I was in Arabia than I ever dreamt. And it did have a great uh, influence on much of my thinking today. Uh, and I also was able to see while I was there uh, why Islam has been more effective in establishing brotherhood among, uh, man in, among mankind than, than any other religion. And what actually had sent me to Mecca was uh, one of the messenger's sons, Minister Wallace Muhammad the brother who used to be the minister right here in Philadelphia. He had told me back in February of 1963 of the importance of the Muslims in the Muslim movement getting a better understanding of the orthodox religion of Islam, the, getting a better spiritual understanding of the religion of Islam as it is actually practiced in the Muslim world. And at that time, I contended with him. I, I wasn't receptive to what he was saying because there were other things that he said that, wherein I thought he was wrong. But I uh, lived uh, to see that everything he told me at that time was 1,000% true. And the best advice anybody ever gave me was the advice he gave me when he encouraged me to make the trip to the holy city of Mecca. And the, as I say, the religious experience itself gave me a, a broader approach, I think. I think it broadened my scope. One of, the things, one of the things that shocked me when I got to Mecca, I saw white people in Mecca. I had always been taught that they didn't have white people over there, and I believe that, because you can't go by anything other than what you're taught if you've never been taught otherwise. But I saw, but the thing about these white people, they weren't white like you find white people in this country. They were white in color, but their attitude was different. I noticed that during the uh, religious pilgrimage, uh, uh, there were occasions, and many occasions, where I was uh, eating with eating from the same plate with white with people who in this country would be considered white, their eyes were blue, their hair was blonde, their skin was white, but their attitude was different. And I, I wondered about this, and I studied it very closely, because the the Afro American, whether he realizes it or not, whatever experience he finds himself in, usually the yardstick that he uses to measure it is the the attitude of racism. We are the victims of racism to such extent. So the, the average one of us, wherever we go, we have our feeler out to find out what is, what's the score here. And usually we want to know, is this man really a brother or is he just pretending? And I studied and I noticed that people of all complexions were getting along in unity and harmony from the uh, whitest white person to the blackest black person. And uh, I tried to come to some conclusion as to what would make a person uh, who looked white here in the Muslim world be so much different from the man that is white here in the Western world that I just left. And I could see that because this particular person had accepted Allah, which means one God, or the chain reaction or logical conclusion means also that he has to accept all people on this earth as one people or belong to one human family. By accepting Allah or one God, 
one has to accept the oneness of the human family. And when one accepts the oneness of the human family, then one doesn't, uh, one realizes rather that uh, the various complexions are, all the are only the varying degrees uh, of people and how they look that it takes to make up this human family. And by uh, looking upon all as the same, you, the, the people who appear to be white don't regard themselves as white in the same way that the white man in this country does. And I could see then that white is more of an attitude than it is a color. And the white man in this country is distinguishable, distinguishable from whites over there by his attitude. His attitude. When the white man in this country says he's white, he means something much different from the white man over there who says he's white. When that man over there says he's white, he means uh, that his skin happens to be lighter uh, than the skin of the others, and that's all. But when the white man in America says he's white, if you listen to the tone of his voice, he's saying, I'm the boss. I'm the best one. I'm the one who's on top. He's, he's bragging about the color of his skin. Whereas when a man over there tells you he's white, this is just a, a, an incidental adjective that he uses to describe uh, his complexion, but it has nothing to do with his position. It has nothing to do with his... Uh, 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 brain uh, content or anything of that sort. And I did feel that if the religion of Islam could uh, do for those white people over there, or so-called white people over there, if it, could, if it could remove the white from their mind as it has, perhaps if the white man here in America would study the religion of Islam and get a better understanding of it in time, maybe he could change his racist attitude and save himself from the inevitable destruction that his country must meet as long as this uh, attitude of racism prevails here in America. And America has the most deeply ingrained uh, attitude of racism that exists among in, in any country anywhere else on this earth. Including South Africa. In, worse than South Africa because the South Africans are at least gentlemen enough to say that they are racist. They preach segregation and practice segregation. But these Americans are such hypocrites. They have the audacity to say they're preaching uh, democracy while they're actually, actually practicing hypocrisy. They preach integration and practice segregation. So I think when you look all over this earth, the South Africans should uh, be worthy of much more respect than the Americans because the, at least the South Africans practice what they preach while the Americans preach one thing and practice another thing. I'm going to open the phones to you now as we move along with the program and give you an opportunity to ask questions and make comments to the guest. Trinity 81023 or Trinity 81024, those are the numbers to call. I'm going to ask you to make one call. One call tonight, please, and two minutes only for any caller. One call in two minutes. The segment of the program brought to you by... They're trying to uh, become more acceptable in the eyes of uh, our oppressors. I would also like to say this, that uh, he's the first of our leaders whom I've heard mention anything at all about the stand of the Afro-Americans in other parts of the world in relation to our position. The Afro-American within the United States has taken the defenses and appears to have rejected the help of his brethren in other countries, for example, Cuba, Brazil, and uh, even in Ghana, where they've labeled it Kruma as uh, a combination of the devil and uh, atheist. So I would just like to say in conclusion that uh, Brother Malcolm, uh, keep up the good work, see if you can get through to some of the other leaders.
he said that they try and make uh, Nkrumah look like a combination between a devil and an atheist. I think that's what he said. Uh, I, I spoke with Nkrumah, President Nkrumah, for an hour. And uh, the, the last thing that he said to me uh, when I was going out the door was, May God bless you. Now, I don't know what kind of atheist would use such expression. I found the man to be a very religious man. Joe Rady. Yes. Saladin Abdul Malik. Yes. And, uh, I want to express great thanks to uh, having Lebanon on your program. And I say that uh, he has expressed himself tonight better than ever before in the past that I've ever heard it. And I have just uh, two or three questions that I think that might be important. Well, you've got two minutes people. now. Can you get three questions in in two minutes? Yeah, I'll try my best. I'm timing myself. Uh, what suggestions uh, does he make to Negro leaders uh, to bring about the unity which will be necessary to bring our fight to the forefront? And the next one is, uh, what is his new outlook and uh, what is his personal intention as a Muslim uh, in regards to other Muslims here in the United States? And the third question is, that in listening to him, I was led to believe that he might have been misled or misguided in some respect in the past, and it appears that he has made uh, new uh, ideas since he made this trip overseas to Mecca uh, in Africa, and I thank you, and this is the thing I'd like to know when made Allah bless him. Well, the, the uh, Afro-American leaders in this country first have to realize not only as individuals, but, as, but also as organizations, that there is no one uh, man wise enough or with a vast amount enough knowledge to really see the problem in its entirety as it actually is. There's no one organization uh, with a scope broad enough to see the problem in its entirety as it actually is. And I think that when it is realized that there, that, it, that it'll take more than individuals to solve the problem, then this combination of individuals will get together and discuss it more objectively, not through the eyes of their organization, but as the problem actually is, and it will be easier to uh, submerge their differences then and, try and reach some kind of solution. I frankly believe, and I've made this mistake, from having to represent an organization and therefore looking at the problem through the eyes of an organization, I've made the mistake of uh, giving a call to Negro leaders to unite, and then, have, then I would have to uh, qualify it by saying we will unite with them as long as uh, we're not asked to compromise our religious principles. Well, this right here uh, eliminates chances of unity. The, the problem is too big for one organization. And if I say to some Negroes, let's unite, and we can do it, but if it uh, goes beyond the scope or the principles of our organization, then I'm more interested in the organization than I am in a solution to the problem. If you come to me with a solution and you prove to me that it is a solution, I shouldn't care what my organization represents if I'm really looking for a solution to the problem. So most Negro organizations are interested in solutions only as long as the solution will enhance the prestige of their particular organization or their particular self. So what we have to do is see the see the, the complexity of this problem and the vastness of it. And then we will realize that we are going to have to forget some of these so-called organizational principles 
uh, and organizational aims and objectives and realize that the real principle and the real aim and the real objective is a solution to the problem. Everything else can be put right down the drain. If you've got some principles that won't help us to solve this problem, then you have the wrong principles. And this is, this is uh, uh, my reaction from having traveled abroad, and I just think that it broadened my scope. And I also realize that as a representative of a religious organization in the past, uh, how organizational approaches usually are so narrow that it's impossible to see the problem or enough of the problem to come up with an answer that will cover the whole thing and enable us to reach a solution. And what is my, as far as my attitude toward uh, other Muslim groups is concerned, uh, when I was in, uh, as I said earlier, when I was in uh, on the religious pilgrimage, the Hajj to Mecca, one of the things that uh, I was standing on the steps uh, in Mecca, on the, on the steps of the house where I was staying in Mecca one day, and a member of the Turkish parliament uh, who had led the uh, Turkish Muslims to Mecca uh, was in, we were in conversation together, and he pointed out, it was actually he who pointed out, he's a very learned man, that uh, the that this particular area, Mecca, during the Hajj season would be an anthropologist's uh, paradise because you have an opportunity to see every specimen of humanity. And it's probably the only time in history and the only spot on earth where you can see every specimen of humanity represented at the same time, from the whitest white to the blackest black. Every culture is represented there. And uh, realizing that Islam is a religion that brings all these people together and enables them to work in harmony and unity toward one common objective because they believe in one God, I frankly believe that if all of the people in this country were able to uh, broaden their scope to that level, it would be possible to formulate some kind of working unity that would enable us to see broad enough to get some kind of solutions to our problem, religiously, politically, economically, socially, academically, intellectually, and otherwise. And I should point out, too, that uh, one of the things that where he says I, that I think I was misled in the past, yes, I must admit that I was, uh, and I probably never would have said this before making the pilgrimage, because when you separate from an organization, it's just like a man separating from his wife. At first, the separation is physical, but it's not really psychological. You separate from her. And though you are separated, you still have some strong feelings and thoughts about her. So uh, you're not you're still subjective whenever you think about her. But after you have been separated physically for long enough, then the, the physical separation also evolves to a psychological separation. And it's the same when a person separates from an organization, whether it's religious, political, fraternal, or otherwise. At first, it's the physical separation. But after that separation has existed for a while, it becomes a psychological separation, and you, re you retain your objectivity, your ability to be objective. And it was this, uh, I think that this is probably one of the effects that uh, the amount of time that has passed since I separated from the organization to which I formerly belong, plus the, the distance that I traveled abroad trying to learn more about the religion of Islam, it, it was possible then for me to look back at some of the religious conclusions that I had come to prior to making this journey, and I found that many of my conclusions were either incorrect and in many cases immature, and in other cases they were, they were right. But by and large, I think that my entire outlook, religiously, politically, economically, socially, and even racially, is much different than it was before I went abroad.
Joe Rainey. Mrs. Hell here as we catch it abroad, and as long as 
one person, one black person is catching hell, all of us are catching hell. And just for one to escape and go to another country doesn't solve the problem. All of us have to have our problem solved or the problem has not been solved for anyone. Joe Rainey. Uh, hello, Mr. Rainey. This is Quitman uh, X. Yes, Quitman X. Um, I would like to refer my remarks to the public in general and you. Um, uh, I recall some time ago that um, I had heard a minister who during that time was referred to as Malcolm X. One of the times when I had first come into the nation of Islam, was he used to be very convincing and convincing of the teaching of the most honorable Elijah Muhammad, the messenger of Allah whom I believed in then and I still believe in. Now, I heard uh, Malcolm Little tonight make a speech about no organization and no man in the United States has brought enough in scope and mind to uh, know our problems. Now, and so much as I know that uh, Elijah Muhammad is the messenger of Allah and he professed to be a Muslim. Now, he professed that is, you understand? Now, I would like to know what is he saying? Is he saying that God himself is not broad enough in scope, but he got a better plan than God Almighty? Of course, I'm not talking to him as, as I don't talk to traders anyway. You see what I mean? But, um, I would like to know, when did he turn a hypocrite? Was it then when he was so convincing, or is it now? Does he want me to ask? Yeah. Um, uh, here's a a person who is reflecting the same thing that I'm glad I escaped from. It's true. There's nobody in America who has ever been able to represent the black Muslim movement and Mr. Muhammad in the manner that I had. In fact, I think most objective students of that organization will agree that had I uh, not represented it as religiously and sincerely as I did, it probably would still remain unheard of today. So instead of this brother, who was probably well-meaning, but guided by his own lack of knowledge and understanding, uh, being ignorant enough to jump on a public microphone and challenge me, he should have asked himself, what was it that caused me to turn? I gave him a hint a little while ago when I said that a separation, when it takes place physically, doesn't always take place psychologically. Had he asked me the same question three three months ago, I would have given him a different answer. But my separation today is psychological as well as physical. He probably should have been able to determine that just from analyzing the type of talking that I've been doing here tonight. I very carefully avoided having anything negative to say about the black Muslim movement. If he was intelligent, he wouldn't have brought that up. But since he has, I have to answer him. Uh, I always represented the black Muslim movement because of its ability to reform the morals of our people. This is the strongest accomplishment that most of the objective uh, critics of it have to admit. The social scientists, the psychologists, the, uh, the uh, criminologists, almost everyone who deals with uh, the vices that destroy the moral fiber of society agree that one of the things that the black Muslim movement has done, it has eliminated these vices. So uh, this was my strongest stick, and I would use it against anyone. But as I said, uh, it was uh, something that Minister Wallace Muhammad told me, 
that made me realize that I had to start trying to get a better understanding of Orthodox Islam. And what he told me not only caused me to be put out, because I, I never did leave the nation of Islam. I was put out. Not only was I put out, but he was put out for telling me what he told me. And six of the uh, brothers, or a couple carloads of brothers from Philadelphia, went to uh, Chicago to see Minister Wallace Muhammad just a couple days ago. And they came back to the city and were put out of the mosque last night. Because he told them the same thing he told me. And it only boils down to uh, 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 one of the uh, young teenage sisters uh, left Detroit and became a secretary in Chicago in 19, I think, 56. And she became pregnant. And we have a strong law in Islam, in the, in the Muslim movement, whereas if anybody, man or woman, has any kind of sexual relations uh, with someone to whom they are not married, automatically uh, they are given time. They are put in isolation. We, they go to, before our court. They brought before the Muslim body. They are humiliated. They are actually disgraced and put in isolation for from one to five years. And this happened to this young sister. She was humiliated and sent back to Detroit. So a couple a year later, one left a teenage sister left Lansing, Michigan, and went to Chicago and again became one of the personal secretaries there. And within a year's time, she had become pregnant. And she was brought before the Muslim body and humiliated and disgraced and put in isolation. And in both of these occasions, everyone took it for granted that it must have been some non-Muslim who had who had betrayed her. So, in uh, by 1957, we had grown so rapidly across the country until it became necessary to hire about eight uh, secretaries in the headquarters in Chica uh, in Chicago. Uh, there were all of them were teenagers. Two of them were right here from Philadelphia. Two of the most prominent sisters of this city moved to Chicago. Uh, thinking that they were going to a place where they would become morally strengthened, morally enlightened, and things of that sort. And uh, how they escaped what happened, I don't know, but from what I understand, they did escape. And they came back to Philadelphia and retained their moral convictions. But in 1959, four of these uh, eight secretaries disappeared. I should say six of them disappeared. Two of them came back to Philadelphia. Uh, four of them disappeared for good. They, they turned up in, in 1960, and all four of them had babies. They were pregnant, and they were brought before the Muslim uh, community there in Chicago and were humiliated. They were disgraced. They went through the general procedure, and because they, none of them ever pointed out who the father of their children was, it was taken for granted that it was uh, some non-Muslim. So uh, I knew nothing about it. I, 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 I was suspicious, but my own religion made me spooky. I thought if I really concentrated on the knowledge that was in front of me that Allah would chastise me. I wouldn't even let facts register in my intelligence. But it was when Minister Wallace Muhammad came out of prison in 1963, he pulled me aside and told me uh, who, was the, who was the father of those children. That those, of all of them? Yes. The same man was the father of all six. The same man violated and spoiled all six. And this is a fact. And it was it was when well, he was in the field for secretaries. Well, he certainly was. <laughs> Keep my secretary away from him. It was it was when it was when Minister Muhammad told me this that I almost was ready for byberry. I couldn't believe it, but it put me in a position where I could not honestly defend the Black Muslim movement as a moral movement anymore. But rather than rather than say anything about it. I, I uh, kept it to myself until they were afraid me, with me having this knowledge. And uh, it was in uh, when Kennedy 
was assassinated that they used that as a pretext to get rid of me, and I still kept it to myself. I tried to protect them all the way down the line. But if you read every edition of the paper that they put out, even in the face of my effort to protect them, they have maligned me and slandered me and talked about me like a dog. And there's a lot of the poor ignorant Muslims who aren't really to blame because they don't know what went on. But if they would take time just to ask Minister Wallace, find out why isn't Minister Wallace Muhammad in the nation of Islam. He was put out with me. And if this brother wants to label me as a hypocrite, he'd have to label everybody else who was put out with me as a hypocrite. And I wouldn't even be talking on this right now, but it's ignorance like this that forces you sometimes to have to expose it. Well, what are you doing in this spring weather? <laughs> Hello, Mr. Bradshaw. I uh, want to say to begin with, uh, one of the most painful things that just happened to, to me when I heard Malcolm X recite those uh, incidents about what happened in Chicago. As you know, I am a Roman Catholic, but I have always admired Malcolm X because, in my opinion, he has done more than most men in our time to bring to the Negro a sense of respect in racial terms for himself. Uh, it would seem to me that it would have been better had he not said the things uh, that he did say. I'm going to quote the Koran. Uh, I'm not a student, though, but I happened to pick this up the other day. Surah 5, where it says, We ordain therein life for life and eye for an eye, nose for a nose and ear for an ear, tooth for a tooth, and etc. Equal for equal. But if any one remits the retention, the retraction by way of charity, it is an act of atonement for himself. And if any fail to judge by the light of the law, they are the wrongdoers. It seems to me it's as the cause which he stands by in a wider sense than helped by his uh, uh, I, I am told by a pretty good source that every effort was being made, every excuse was being sought after to find uh, a justifiable way to do exactly what was done. Uh, and as when he said, why did I keep this thing so long to myself and then tell it now? I, I'm surprised at him uh, for thinking ill of me, for speaking truth. If he had listened to this person uh, malign me and slander me, actually, uh, he would have been able to detect that someone had really poisoned this person. Someone had uh, filled this person's mind with poison to make him think that I was the criminal, that I was a hypocrite. Well, whoever did it was a person who had a full knowledge of what actually had taken place. And it has only been my uh, silence that has created a vacuum that has enabled uh, very skillful uh, people to plant the seed of poison to make it appear to the public that I am wrong and was wrong for having left the Muslim movement. Well, I was silent on it for a long time. And during this silence, I think many people have been led astray and have been misinformed and are right now being misused. So I have no alternative other than to speak it. If they want me to be quiet, then they should keep these little uh, uh, brothers who are ignorant quiet. But from now on, anybody who opens up their mouth on me, I will sting them. And I will sting them with truth, and I'm not particularly concerned with what the consequences may be. Uh, and so, and in regards to this gentleman who... Uh, said, why must I teach hate? 
I don't think any white person in America is justified with classifying anything that black people in this country teach as hate. The black man is being bitten by your dogs that white people are sicking on us. Our heads are being battered with clubs that your policemen are putting up beside our heads. Our women and our children are being washed down sewers by white men who will have poses in their hands toward us. Now, how in the world can you see us being brutalized and victimized day in and day out? And when we speak out against it, out against it, you have the nerve enough to say that uh, uh, that we're teaching some kind of hate. You should be ashamed of yourself. Whether you are, uh, uh, and if you are a Negro who uh, who happens to be calling, you are a Negro on the outside, but you're white on the inside because you have more feeling for the white man than you have for your own kind. How in the world could you see your own people uh, being 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 brutalized as our people are being brutalized? You see the white man in Washington D.C. right now. Every form of political trickery imaginable is being exercised just to keep us from becoming citizens. And you have the audacity to say, I teach hate? No, if truth is hate, then you need a whole lot more of it. I'm just telling you the truth. Take it or leave it. Not well, American, we my left. He imported my blood brother, flesh and blood brother, and put a script in his hand to make him attack me on national television, national radio, and at no time did I open up my mouth to defend myself. And the same thing that I just stated, I knew it then. But I knew my brother was dumb and didn't know what he was doing. He had no knowledge of it. And they used him in his ignorance. So I don't intend to keep uh, my mouth shut and let our people remain ignorant so they can continue to be used because they'll find some innocent person either committing murder or some innocent person being murdered because of their innocence. Joe Rainey. Uh, uh, Mahan, uh, Mahan, uh, Mahan, uh, Mahan, uh, shows you what is really basically wrong in this society and also on the part of our people in trying to correct it. I stated from the start that no one has ever defended, and I don't think anybody in America 
in, can, will deny that uh, anyone has ever defended a movement or represented a movement as I have defended and represented the movement to which I formerly belong. At no time have I attacked it. Now, all someone has to do is pick up any newspaper that has been put out uh, by that movement since I left. And you will see, once you know the true reason why I left, then you go back and read the type of slander that they put out, and I think you'll have to agree that it was remarkable that I kept quiet as long as I did. And then you also go back and listen to what this young man said. And I happen to know that the man is ignorant. And he says these things only in his ignorance. But I'll tell the world. If they what, think what, I, what young man? This young man who asked the question as to, rather, who attacked me as a hypocrite. Whitman X. Yes, Whitman X. Whitman. Whitman, Whitman yeah. Whitman. <laughs> That's a good name for him. Uh, uh and, and I don't hold it against him because I know what they're doing. And, I, and, and probably the public doesn't realize what is being taught from the various pulpits in most of the temples uh, where I'm concerned. And I'm willing to take whatever consequences are forthcoming for what I'm saying. Uh, I, if I'm not going to bite my tongue in talking about what the white man and others have done, what makes someone think I'll bite my tongue now? I don't bite my tongue on anyone. I kept my peace as long as no one got on the air and attacked me. But when somebody starts attacking me on the air or otherwise, you are you are attacking a man who will defend himself if it costs him his life and if it costs you your life. Now, insofar as the new way that the lady asked about, uh, one of the things that our people have got to realize is the problem that we're, that's confronting us is not the problem that can be approached by an individual organization or an individual person. It's a human problem, and it's a problem for humanity. And until we uh, take the problem out of this civil rights context and study the uh, various human rights findings of the United Nations and these other international bodies, we'll never be able to place the problem in its proper perspective. When we realize it's a human problem, a problem of humanity, and all human beings on this earth will have to work with us to see that the human rights of the black people in this country are respected and protected as well as the human as the human rights of others are also respected and protected. I would like to address a couple of brief observations to your guest. Uh, first of all, I what is your name? What's your name? Of the you want to tell me your name? Yeah, Bob Lambert. All right, I'm in a complete accord with his appraisal of the severity of the situation that the Afro-American faces in this country. I will concede to him that he is perfectly correct in supposing that there is complete justification for the Negro in this country to feel spontaneously an emotion at least closely akin to hate of the white person categorically. However, I would like to suggest uh, to Malcolm X that there is a grave logical problem involved in some of what he has said, at least in the past, and I would like him to comment on it. And that is the logical problem of over-induction. <clears throat> that is to say, he is committing, I believe, the same grievous error of reason as has been committed typically by many whites, in fact, most whites categorically, that is to say, hating the one who is not guilty for the sins of those with whom he shares color that are guilty. I think that if I were to find myself fighting any fight with someone because I shared his sense of what was right, and if I were in that very fight to be stabbed by the very man with whom I fought for a common principle, I would need necessarily to regard 
him as a traitor to both our causes. This is what I fear that Malcolm X may be running himself into. To say of all whites that they shall share both the guilt and the hate for the perpetrations of admittedly most whites is to say that whites who fight with you because they agree with you are necessarily to be subject to traitorous treatment on your part. This, I think, is a danger. What this, Thank you. Yes, what this gentleman doesn't realize is, first, I don't think you'll ever find any uh, Muslim mentioning anything about hate. I have never heard any Negro in this country use the word hate. This uh, obsession with hate is usually on the part of whites. They're so guilty that they think every black person in this country uh, either hates them or is teaching others to hate them. But this is a guilt complex on the part of whites. They're so guilty. Uh, that they get this impression. Uh, when, whenever he's saying, we also, we don't collectively uh, condemn all white people. We are uh, condemning the deeds, the collective deeds of the people in this country who have victimized our people collectively. No, uh, condemn all white people. We are uh, condemning the deeds, the collective deeds of the people in this country who have victimized our people collectively. No, whatever category we are born in, we're still a collective category. Look at Ralph Bunch as an internationally recognized and respected diplomat. But when he was in Georgia and trying to attend the uh, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People's uh, Convention, he couldn't live in a hotel. He was discriminated. Now, here's a man who, has, who is respected all over the world. But here in America, he's placed in the same category of any other Negro. Uh, there was... Uh, Congressman from Detroit, the Diggs, was in a house down in, in Mississippi, which was bombed. He's, a, he's in the Congress, yet he's placed in the same category of all Negroes. His, uh, uh, the fact that they place him in this collective category makes him the potential victim because of the color of his skin. No matter what he attains, no matter what his academic, his intellectual, or professional level is, he still is on the same, in the same category, collective category, and a potential victim, as all other uh, Afro-Americans or Negroes in this country. Well, just as we are in the same category collectively because of the system, I think you'll find that white people have to realize that they are collectively guilty, even though as individuals they haven't done it, uh, because they happen to belong to that race that is doing it, collectively they're just as responsible as Bunch is a part of this collective crime that's being committed against us collectively. If he can't escape as an individual, I don't see how white people think they can escape as individuals. It's a collective problem. And, and until the problem is solved for all, it hasn't been solved for one. And when you look deeper into it, sir, I think you'll agree that it's the system itself that we call democracy that's absolutely incapable of giving the things to the black people in this country that it gives to white people, just as the system of a chicken is not capable of producing a duck egg, though both belong to the fowl family. A duck just can't lay a chicken egg, nor can a chicken lay a duck egg, because the system of the chicken isn't so constructed that it will produce a duck egg. Well, just as that can't happen, the system of here in America, the political system, the economic system, is not so constructed that it is capable of producing freedom for the Afro-American. And until you see, show me where the chicken can lay a, a duck egg, 
you will never convince me that this system that we call democracy can produce the fruits of democracy for the black people in this country. Are you saying at the same time that uh, that the uh, Negro should, uh, you say you cast aside the word hate a few minutes ago, should uh, look with ill favor against all white people? No. Uh, you're not saying that we should be cautious. Yeah. Uh, you're not saying that they should look with ill favor no, against all whites. Are, you, are you saying that there are uh, that there are no whites in the United States who are friendly to Negro or the Negro cause? Well, uh, the wolf was friendly to Red Riding Hood when she came knocking at the door. And I think the motive is the thing that uh, she had to examine. And you'll find that in... Well, are you saying then that the uh, that uh, no white is friendly with the proper motive? Well, if they are, and even if they are, I think our people are beginning to today to search for the motive. Just these beautiful words that whites uh, shower us with aren't sufficient. You'll find that the average Afro-American... Well, what about action? ...has become... Well, we study the actions, too, because the, the motive is the thing. Uh, we, we go for good actions. But at the same time, it is uh, imperative today to study the motive behind those good actions, just like uh, President Kennedy. Well, we still get to the point that after you do that, do you always find that the motive is an ill motive? No. Well, any white people who's prop any white person who's properly motivated uh, in trying to help the Afro-American uh, get a solution to this problem, I think that that properly motivated white person will find himself getting a just reward. But if a reward is all he's looking for, then he's not properly motivated. But there are such people. That's my point. It, well, probably there are. My search, but you, you know, hasn't... But you haven't found any? I haven't searched hard enough, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I mean, I'm forced to believe that there are some good white people in the United States. Well, I don't think that they're all uh, ill-motivated. I didn't say that. No, I don't know whether, uh, I, I won't say that we don't have to look far because they're far and few between, but uh, I still haven't been convinced that there aren't some good ones. Well, I never would say that there aren't some good ones, but uh, as a, an Afro-American, I'm only 39 years old. And you have 39 years, you haven't found one? In 39 years, uh, it has been difficult for me to look back today and find one whose motives I don't suspect. Joe Rainey. Yes, Reverend. I just want to say to you. You're a stranger. Huh? You're a stranger. Well, I didn't sleep, but he said something tonight that uh, got me. You mean you heard him while you were asleep? Yeah, I got up on bed. I was laying in sleep between sleep and wake. Right. Yes. by the radio. And he said something, and he was talking about the man, the girl. Now, one thing I want to say to him, if, if it is the truth, Malcolm, it is the truth. Only the truth shall make you free. Now, this is one thing that you find among us. They want to do anything, all kind of filth, dirty low down and hide behind the door, but they don't want it to come out in the open. That's right, they'll kill you. Whatever the truth is, it is the truth. And it seems to me that every time you start telling some kind of truth, then especially the females, because it seems to me that there's a psychological block among the females that come out, it seems like it must be some guilt complex in them that bring these things out as soon as you speak about this with these these old women what have been there now if that is the truth it's the truth and i don't blame people for standing up for the truth but i want to call your attention to just one thing if you will remember when you was here once before about six or eight months before uh, you know you separated and that the article was in the Pittsburgh Courier 
and I call your attention to it when you suppose you move from wife. Do you remember that, Malcolm? I remember. All right. I call your attention, and if you remember the last word I said before I hung up, I said this. I said, look to me like this is the beginning of the end. <laughs> Don't you remember? Oh, yes, brother. I never forget our thing. So I just want to compliment you on telling the truth. Because well, when it comes to the truth, it seems to us that we, our people, want to cover up and hide. If our children do something wrong, we want to say, oh, he's a good boy, but he's wrong. If a child is wrong, they're wrong. If the man got the women out of the way, got them out of the way. They were wrong. That's about it. Yes, thank you, Reverend, and I'm glad you reminded me of that uh, incident a few months back. This is true. Uh, many people tried to tell me uh, what was coming, and I think that those who tried to tell me will also admit that I was just as sincere then in trying to defend what I knew, uh, uh, in trying to defend the movement that I represented, even though they were trying to tell me what was coming. I always defended Mr. Muhammad, and I always defended the black Muslim movement. But I think that the whole world will agree that uh, there some skullduggery took place, and although I have been covering, uh, covering it up, I don't intend to cover it up. As the Reverend said, if it's the truth, tell it, and it is the truth. I didn't say who was the father of those children, but it doesn't have to, uh, one doesn't, all one has to do is find out, did did those uh, six teenage sisters uh, actually become, uh, uh, were they molested? And were they debased? And then were they humiliated? Were they disgraced? And every Muslim in this country who is a member of the Muslim movement right to this day looks down on them because the Muslims don't really realize who it was that actually destroyed the virginity, the chastity, and the reputation of those girls because they stood up and took the blame, knowing that the one that was sentencing them out and humiliating them was the one responsible for their condition. And I think those sisters have to be given credit. And until it's told, the, 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 the honor will be going in the wrong direction and the blame will be going in the wrong direction. And this is the thing that preachers in this country have been doing from time immemorial. And until someone stands up and puts a stop to it, it will continue to take place. Joe Rainey. Oh, uh, hello, Mr. Rainey. Yes. I'll make it short. Um, Who is this? My name is Quentin. No, no. One call tonight, Quint. One call. <laughs> I eliminate everybody to one call in two minutes. I just make one statement. That's it. Joe Rainey. Yeah, that's not fair, Quint. Joe Rainey. Welcome back, and uh, that was an interview uh, with uh, Malcolm X, uh, El Hajj Malik Shabazz, on June 4th of 1964 at WDAS in the city of Philadelphia, and we're commemorating the upcoming 60th anniversary of the formation of the Organization of African Unity on May 25th of 1963, and of course, we're also 
commemorating the birthday of uh, Malcolm X, uh, which was just two days ago on May 19th of 1925, some 98 years ago. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. Only you can heal my soul. Detroit's own Aretha Franklin uh, from her first Atlantic uh, label album, I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You, uh, from 1967. That track was entitled Soul Serenade. And uh, this is Abayami Azikawe. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, May 21st, uh, 2023. And as I mentioned earlier, four days from now, will represent the 60th anniversary of the founding of the Organization of African Unity. And uh, Malcolm X, uh, in 1964, traveled to the second summit uh, of uh, the Organization of African Unity that was held in mid-July in Cairo, Egypt. And he made an appeal uh, through a memorandum to the heads of state uh, at the second uh, OAU summit uh, appealing Uh, for their support uh, for the African-American struggle for equality and self-determination. Others 
speech we're going to hear excerpts from uh, was delivered on January 7th, 1965 in New York City, where he discusses uh, various aspects of his evolving political and ideological program. Uh, let's listen in. Mr. Chairman, one of my brothers, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, this is, I'm very honored, I feel very honored, it's an honor to me to be able to come back to the militant labor forum again this evening. It's my third time here. I was just telling my brother up here that Probably tomorrow morning the press will, will try and make it appear that this little chat that we're having here this evening took place in Beijing or someplace else. They have a tendency to discolor things uh, in, that, in that way to try and make people not place the proper importance upon what they hear, especially when they're hearing it nowadays from persons whom they can't control or as my brother has just pointed out persons whom they consider irresponsible but it's the third time that i've had an opportunity to irresponsible but it's the third time that i've had an opportunity to uh, be a guest on the militant labor forum and i always feel that it is an honor and every time they open the door for me to do so, I will be right here. The, mil the, mil the militant newspaper is one of the best in New York City. In fact, it's one of the best everywhere you go today because everywhere I go, I see it. I saw it even in Paris about a month ago. Uh, they were reading it over there, and I saw the copies of it in some parts of Africa where I was during the summer. I don't know how it gets there, but if you put the right things in it, what you put in it will see that it gets around. Tonight, during the few moments that we have, we're going to have a little chat, like brothers and sisters and friends, and probably enemies too about the prospect for peace or prospect for freedom in 1965. But you notice I almost, almost slipped there and said peace. Actually, you can't separate peace from freedom. Anybody, no one can be at peace unless he has his freedom. You can't separate the two. And this is the thing that makes 1965 so explosive and so dangerous. The people in this country who in the past have been at peace and been peaceful were that way only because they didn't know what freedom was. They let somebody else define it for them. But today, 1965, you find those who have not had freedom uh, and not in a position to define freedom, they're beginning to define it for themselves now. And as they get in a position intellectually to define freedom for themselves, they see that they don't have it. And it makes them less peaceful or less inclined toward peace. So in discussing this topic tonight, prospects for freedom in 1965, I think we have to go back at least 12 years or 10 years to the time when the struggle of the black man in America began to be projected into the limelight 
not only in this country but throughout the world. It started primarily with the Supreme Court decision, so-called desegregation decision, and uh, I should say so-called desegregation, so-called decision, because uh, there has been some doubt as to what they really handed down. One of the main ingredients in the struggle of the black man in America for the past 12 years has been the black Muslim movement. No one can, can uh, deny the role that the black Muslim movement has played in America during the past 12 years has been one of the main ingredients in the uh, stepped-up militancy on the part of black people throughout this country. No matter what direction the black Muslim movement itself was headed in, no matter what its own organizational philosophy was, and no matter what other people thought about it, no matter what their personal opinions were of the black Muslim movement, still it cannot be denied that that movement, because of its uncompromising stand and uncompromisingly militant approach to things, uh, forced other civil rights organizations to be more militant than they normally would have been, and forced many of the civil rights leaders definitely to be more militant than they ever would have thought of being. So the, the militancy of the black man in America during the past 10 years, in my opinion, can be traced largely to the existence and presence of the movement, which I'm referring to now for purpose of identification, as the black Muslim movement. Its contribution to the black struggle for freedom in this country was militancy. It made many of our people dare to get loud for the first time in 400 years. Many of the black leaders of the civil rights movement dare to get loud for the first time. I mean really loud for the first time in, in 400, nearly 400 years of our being in this country. They got more militant than they intended to be, and they made many of the people become more militant than they intended for the people to be. It had a chain reaction effect that actually got out of control somewhat because the leaders themselves never intended and never do intend for our people to go too far. Their primary purpose in our midst has always been to contain our struggle, not lead our struggle. Proof of which seldom are they seen until the irresponsible elements in the black community begin to explode. And then they go all the way around the country to grab one of them from wherever he's traveling and bring him in to cool things down, to tell us to be cool or tell us to take it easy, don't rock the boat. This is their function. This is their role. At least it has been up until recent times. They never have been put in the role that they're in with the intention by the, by the one who puts them there of them leading us into any uncompromising un, uh, and militant uh, struggle. But the existence of some of the Muslim groups and the black nationalist groups that couldn't be controlled by the power structure downtown and I only use the expression power structure downtown to keep from calling it what it actually is, 
nationalist elements actually uh, serve their purpose in that sense. They gave respectability to the civil rights groups and gave acceptability to the civil rights groups. Ten years ago or more, the NAACP was looked upon as a, a radical leftist, almost subversive movement. And then when the black Muslim movement came along, the power structure said, thank the Lord for Roy Wilkins and the NAACP. This is true. Pick up any newspaper that was printed 10 years ago and read what was being said about CORE and NAACP and Urban League and some of these other groups. They were considered irresponsible. They were considered moving too fast. They were considered almost extremists. And then when they looked around one day and found someone talking about all of them are devils, they were all night looking up Roy Wilkins and James Farmer and the Right Reverend Dr. King and some of the others to soothe them and keep them thinking that all of our people didn't didn't think like that. So it did contribute its part in the struggle. It made Roy Wilkins acceptable and honorable and responsible. And sometimes today I think he's forgotten what we've done for him. <laughs> this is one of the reasons why Tom and Boya has lasted so long in Kenya. Uh, during the Mau Mau uprising, when white people were scared to death, not only in Kenya, but throughout Africa, and not only in Africa, but throughout the world, because there were people who looked just like the Kikuyu right here in New York, in Mississippi, <laughs> and other places. When, uh, when Mau Mau was on the rampage, and Jomo Kenyatta was given the image of a monster because his own image was so ghastly in, in the sight of whites, the image of Tom and Boya immediately became acceptable because Kenyatta seemed to be so irresponsible and Boya became responsible. He became acceptable, responsible, you know, and made everybody happy. So they supported him, they backed him up, made him prominent throughout the world. Kenyatta made him, he didn't make himself, and he's in, he was intelligent enough to know it. So when Kenyatta got out, he supported Kenyatta. He realized that can, the contribution of Kenyatta made him what he was. And because he was intelligent enough, he, had, he was blessed with sufficient insight to see the role that Kenyatta and the Mau Mau played in his own uh, prominence, an image of respectability and acceptability, he continued to support Kenyatta, and today he's still a part of Kenyatta's government. And I must take time right here to point out that that's a good study in itself. It took the Mau Mau to bring independence not only to Kenya, it took the Mau Mau to bring independence to most of Africa. When a man is sad over his miserable condition, he does nothing to change it. Sadness doesn't change anything. It's only when he gets mad that he changes it. 
It takes madness to change it. One of the things I noticed when I was in Africa traveling around, I noticed many Africans who were still colonized, still exploited, still oppressed. And one of the things all of them had in common was they seemed sad. They would discuss their sad plight, but they weren't ready to really do anything to change it. They seemed to be waiting on some miracle. But the contrasting difference between them and what happened in Kenya, the Kikuyu got mad. They just didn't care what the consequences were. They knew they cared nothing about legality, morality, or anything. All they knew was that they were being oppressed unjustly, illegally, immorally. And because of this unjust, illegal, immoral oppression that they were suffering, they came to the conclusion that they would be within their rights to bring it to a halt by any means necessary. And they adopted those means. When they began to use these means in their struggle for freedom, the, the press of the West began to project them in a very negative image. They were freedom fighters. They were African patriots fighting against oppression. They weren't fighting against a legal government. They weren't fighting against a moral society. They were fighting against a, uh, a colonial power, an imperialist power, uh, a vulturous society. And this vulturous society, with its control of the press and its, and its uh, allies here in the United States, who also control much of the press, projected these freedom fighters, these African patriots, uh, in the image of savages, cannibals, terrorists, some as criminals, actually. And they projected Jomo Kenyatta in an image worse than all. But the Mao Mao weren't image conscious. They weren't uh, status seekers. They weren't social climbers. They wanted freedom. And they came to a conclusion at a point in their journey that the only way there was to get it was the way they did it, and they got it. I admire them for that. I respect them for that. Now that they are free, Jomo Kenyatta, whose image was that of a monster four years ago, is the president of Kenya. He's respected. Uh, so much so that when the hostages were being held in Stanleyville and no one else dared to do anything about it, they called on Jomo and asked him would he sit down and mediate between the American ambassador, Atwood, there in Kenya, and uh, Tom Kanza from Stanleyville, the same man that the West had projected as a monster. They had to call on him. And when you go to Kenya today, you will find white people in Kenya praying that Kenyatta doesn't die. The same, yes, they're praying, and they should. Uh, they are praying that he doesn't die. The same man that a few years ago was projected as a monster, as an extremist, as being irresponsible. Now they say he's the most responsible head of state on the African continent. So the difference between being projected as an extremist or a monster is only, only depends upon who controls the projection. If you project your own image, then you are able to project a positive image. But when your enemy is your master, and when your enemy masters the press that's going to build, create this image and project it abroad, then naturally your enemy is going to project you in the image of a monster. So I say, and I must say, because a reporter was asking me a few moments ago to 
either confirm or deny the statement that mentioned why I said we need a Mau Mau in the United States. I never would deny that. Why, we need more than a Mau Mau in the United States. I mean, actually, a person have a lot of nerve to ask me that. In a society, in a society, I'm deviating now because he put me off the track. I got to deviate. In a society where in 1964, three civil rights workers can be murdered in cold blood, and the, not the Mississippi government, the federal government can't do anything about it. I say we need a Mau Mau. When a Negro educator can be murdered in Georgia, and they know who murdered him, and the government can do nothing about it, I say we need a Mau Mau. <laughs> and I'll be the first to join it. And a lot of people that you don't think go for it will line right up behind me. <laughs> So getting back to the black Muslim movement, the, you have to understand it in order to understand pretty much what has taken place in the civil rights movement in this country during the past 10 years, and in order to understand what might take place in 1965. The black Muslim movement attracted the most militant young black people in this country, the most restless, the most impatient and the most uncompromising black men and women were attracted to the black Muslim movement. But the movement itself, as it began to grow, actually was maneuvered into a, a vacuum in that it, it represented itself as a religious movement and the religion under which it identified itself was Islam. And the people in the part of the world who also identified that as their religion did not accept the black Muslim movement as a bona fide Islamic or Muslim movement. They never did accept it as that. So it, put it, it, it was put in the position of going by a religion that rejected it, which put it into a vacuum or made it a religious hybrid. On the other hand, the government in Washington I guess that's where it is. Tried to label the black Muslim movement uh, as political. It used the press, it maneuvered the press to project the black Muslim movement in an image that would enable the government itself to, uh, to list it as political and therefore label it seditious and subversive and step in and stomp it out like it stomps out most bona fide freedom movements that appear in this country. So the black Muslim movement was not only a, 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 a religious hybrid, but it became a political hybrid in that it was more political than religious, but at the same time it didn't take part in politics. It didn't take part in the civil rights struggle. It took part in nothing that black people in this country was doing to correct 
conditions that existed in our community other than it had a moral force that it, it stopped our people from getting drunk and taking drugs and things of that sort, which is not enough. After you sober up, you're still poor. So it became in a vacuum. It had it actually developed, it grew, it became powerful, but it was in a vacuum. And it was filled with extremely militant young people who weren't willing to compromise with anything and wanted action. More action, actually, than the organization itself could produce. More constructive action and positive action than the hierarchy of the organization was qualified, actually, to produce. The main objective of the movement was land. The main objective of the movement was land. But the, those in the movement were told that God would come and take them to that land. Well, for a time this was all right, but no visible means were ever detected by anyone in the movement that would enable us to see that a plan was afoot to make this objective materialize. It caused dissatisfaction. It caused dissension, which eventually developed division. And out of the division, immediately, those who left, uh, out of that division, or out of those who left, was formed uh, an authentic religious group known as Muslim Mosque Incorporated, which practice the religion of Islam as it is practiced and taught in and Lahore and other parts of the Muslim world. But those who went into the uh, orthodox practice of the Islam religion in the Muslim mosque incorporated, at the same time we realized that we were black people in a white society. That we were black people in a racist society. We were black people in a society whose very political system was based and nourished upon racism, whose social system was a racist system, whose economic system was nourished with racism. We were black people who wanted to be religious, who wanted to practice brotherhood and all of that, who wanted to love everybody and all of that too. But at the same time, that was a dream, you know, as my good friend the doctor said. So wanting brotherhood and wanting peace and wanting all these other beautiful things, we had to also face reality and realize that we were in a racist society that was controlled by racists from the federal government right on down to the local government, from the White House right on down to City Hall. Racism was what we were confronted by. So we knew that this was a problem that was beyond religion. And we formed another organization that was non-religious. And this organization was called the Organization of Afro-American Unity, or the OAAU. And we, we, we got the idea for it from travels and observation of the success that our brothers on the African continent were having in their struggle for freedom. They were getting free faster than we. They were getting their independence faster than we. 
They were getting recognition and respect even when they came to this country faster than we. So we had to find out what was happening. How were they doing it and what were they doing? So we could try a little bit of it. In the, on, on the African continent, the imperialists, the colonial powers had always divided and conquered. They had practiced divide and conquer. And this had kept the people of Africa and Asia from ever coming together. So on the African continent had appeared an organization known as the OAU, or Organization of African Unity. And this had been put together by a group of uh, highly skilled African intellectuals and politicians. Uh, and it was designed to make the African heads of state who had been kept apart and divided from each other by differences, petty differences, per, uh, personal differences, this organization prov provided an atmosphere in which these heads of state could submerge their differences and work together in areas where they could agree toward a common objective. And since we in America were confronted with the same divisive tactics from our enemy, we decided to call ours the organization of Afro-American unity, which would be uh, designed after the letter and spirit of the organization of African unity. In fact, we considered ourselves an offspring of our uh, parent organization on our mother continent. After it was formed, I spent five months in, in the Middle East and Africa, primarily for the purpose of getting better acquaint acquainted with them and making them better acquainted with us, giving them a first-hand account of our problem and what our problem actually consists of. When I first got there in uh, July, I found some of them difficult to talk to. But by the time I left in November, I didn't find anybody difficult to talk to. And I might say that right here and now that one of the things that made the uh, objective more easily reached was America's identifying herself with Moy Shumby. Never could a government do anything more suicidal politically than the, this government's choosing Moise Shambi as a bed partner in 1964. And the, the offspring of that adulterous act will be something that they never will be able to put under the rug. By the time I had returned... By the time I had returned in uh, last month, the Muslim Mosque Incorporated had received official recognition and support by all of the official religious bodies in the Muslim world, and the Organization of Afro-American Unity had also received recognition and support from all of the African countries uh, where I visited and, and most of those where I didn't visit. The first thing I returned, I kept being asked the question by some reporters, <laughs> uh, we heard you change. And I, I would say I was kind to the reporter, actually. I smiled and all. 
But I would say to myself, how in the world can a white man expect the black man to change before he has changed? How do you expect us to change when you haven't changed? How do you expect us to change when the cause that made us as we are has not been removed? Why, it's infantile, it's immature, and adolescent on, the part, on your part to expect us to change, to expect us to be dumb enough to change when you have not yet gone to the cause of the condition that makes us act as we do. You got the wrong man. It's true, I'm a Muslim, and I believe in brotherhood, and I believe in the brotherhood of all men, but my religion doesn't make me a fool. <laughs> my religion makes me be against all forms of racism that keeps me from judging any man by the color of his skin. It teaches me to judge him by his deeds and his conscious behavior. And it teaches me to be the right, be for the rights of all human beings, but especially the Afro-American human beings. Because my religion is a natural religion, and the first law of nature is self-preservation. One of the things that our people have not been doing in this country up until now, we have not been uh, exercising the first law of nature. We have not thought of ourselves first. We have placed America first. We have placed America's interests ahead of our own. We have placed even the interests of whites ahead of our own. We have loved whites when they refused to love us. We have sought to move into their neighborhood when they did, we knew in advance they didn't want us there. We have crawled like animals at the feet of the white man in this country and been rejected. So that today, if you see us step back and get away from you, you can't blame us. You have to blame yourself or your mother or your father. You don't want to accept the blame yourself, then put it on your mother and your father. But don't put it on us. So now to get to my talk. <laughs> About 1965 and the prospects for freedom. <laughs> In 1964, oppressed people all over the world, in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, in the Caribbean, made some progress. Northern Rhodesia threw off the yoke of colonialism and became Zambia, was accepted into the United Nations, the Society of Independent Governments. Nyasaland became Malawi also was accepted into the UN, into the family of independent governments. Zanzibar had a revolution. <laughs> it threw out the 
colonialists and their lackeys, and then united with Tanganyika, what is now known as the Republic of Tanzania, which is progress indeed. I was there, one of the most beautiful countries and the best people that I was with. My good friend, Abdurrahman Mohammed Babu, was one of the architects of the revolution. And I find him to be a most in, highly enlightened human being and a humanitarian and a lover of freedom. Also in 1964, the oppressed people in the South Vietnam area and that entire South uh, East Asia area were successful in fighting off the agents of imperialism. All the king's horses and all the king's men have enabled them to put north and south that imperialism. All the king's horses and all the king's men have enabled them to put north and south Vietnam back together again. <laughs> Little rice farmers, rice farmers, peasants with a rifle, and all the weapons of warfare, highly mechanized, jets, napalm, battleships, everything else, and they can't put those rice farmers back where they want them. Somebody's waking up. In the Congo also, the People's Republic of the Congo, headquartered at Stanleyville, fought the war for freedom against Shombi, who was an agent of Western imperialism. And by Western imperialism, I mean that which is headquartered in the United States, in the State Department. <laughs> in 1964, this government, subsidizing Shombi, the murderer of Lumumba, and Shombi's mercenaries, hired killers from South Africa, along with the former colonial power, Belgium, dropped paratroopers on the people of the Congo, used Cubans that they had trained to drop bombs on the people of the Congo with American-made planes. To no avail. The struggle is still going on, and America's man, Shambi, is still losing. All of this in 1964. Now, I'm speaking like this, it doesn't mean that I'm anti American. I'm not. I'm not anti American <laughs> or un American. And I'm not saying that to defend myself, because if I was that, I'd have a right to be that after what America has done to us. This government should be lucky that our people aren't anti-American. They should get down on your hands and knees every morning and thank God that 22 million black people have, have not become anti-American. Because well, if anybody has a right to be anti-American, we have. You've given us every right to it. And the whole world would side with us if we became anti-American. You know, that's something to think about. 
But we're not anti-American. But we see we are anti or against what America is doing wrong in other parts of the world as well as his. And what she did in the Congo in 1964 is wrong. It's criminal. Criminal. And what she did to the American public to get the American public to go along with it is criminal. What she's doing in South Vietnam is criminal. She's causing American soldiers to be murdered every day, killed every day, die every day for no, no reason at all. That's wrong. Now, you're not supposed to be so blind with patriotism that you can't face reality. Wrong is wrong no matter who, who does it or who says it. Now, if I'm anti-American for saying that, then Wayne Morris is anti-American. Church, Senator from somewhere out there is anti-American. Whole lot of them in Washington, D.C. is anti-American. So I'm just telling you what I, I read the good senators said. <laughs> also in 1964, uh, China exploded her bomb, which was a scientific breakthrough for the oppressed people in China who suffered for a long time. I, for one, was very happy to hear that the great people of China uh, were able to display their scientific advancement, advanced knowledge of science, to the point where a country that is so backward, as this country keeps saying, and so, you know, behind everybody and so poor, could come up with, a, on a, with an atomic bomb. Why, I had to marvel at that. It uh, made me realize that poor people can do it as well as rich people. <laughs> So all of these little advances were made by oppressed people in other parts of the world during 1964. These were tangible gains. And the reason that they were able to make these gains, they, they realized that power was the magic word. Power against power. Power in defense of freedom is greater than power in behalf of tyranny and oppression. Because power, real power, comes from conviction, and it produces action, uncompromising action. It also produces insurrection against oppression. This is the only way you end oppression, with power. Power, the power, never, power never takes a back step, only in the face of more power. It doesn't do it with a, it doesn't, power doesn't back up in the face of a smile, or in the face of a prayer, or in the face of some kind of non-violent loving action. Power, it's not the nature of power to back up in the face of anything but some more power. And this is what the, this is what the people have realized in Southeast Asia, in the Congo, in Cuba, in other parts of the world, that power recognizes only power. And all of them who recognize, realize this have made gains. Now here in America, it's different. When you compare our strides in 1964 
with strides that have been made forward by people elsewhere all over the world, only then can you appreciate the great double-cross experienced by black people here in America in 1964. The, the, the power structure started the new year out the same way they started that out in Washington the other day, only now they call it, what's that, the Great Society? The Great Society. Last year, just, uh, 1964, was supposed to be the year of promise. They opened up the new year in Washington, D.C., and in the City Hall, and in Albany, talking about the year of promise. Promise that black people would make advances in education, would get better schools, better school facilities, better teachers that jobs would open up. There would be less black people in the unemployment line. That in areas of the South where we formerly had not been able to vote, we would be, we would be able to register and vote. That we, we would become socially acceptable to those who in the past did not consider us socially acceptable. But by the end of 1964, we had to agree that in, instead of the year of promise, Instead of these promises materializing, they substituted devices to create the illusion of progress. And 1964 was the year of illusion and delusion. We received nothing but a promise. We received nothing that would actually solve the problems that we were confronted by in January of 1964. In 1963, they had used the trick, one of their devices, to uh, let off the steam of prostration was the march on Washington. They used that to make us think we were making progress. Imagine marching to Washington and getting nothing for it whatsoever. But it shows you how true the power structure is. It the people through the leaders, as long as the people believe in the leaders. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the voice of Malcolm X speaking in New York City. On January 7th of 1965, under the theme of Prospects for Freedom, 1965. And that's going to conclude our program uh, for uh, this week. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, a special worldwide radio broadcast. And, of course, uh, we are a weekly uh, audio news magazine. If you'd like to have access to this program, uh, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network, that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out our program uh, with the music of John Coltrane uh, from the 1965 recording Ascension. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week. Mm-hmm.